Good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. We're going to continue worshiping God together as we open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 3. We're moving on. We're making progress. <laughs> Finally, chapter 3. We've got a lot to cover here. I'm going to read this entire chapter, and then we'll get to work. Acts 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then, taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized it. He was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. While he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's colonnade. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people, fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us? As though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life, whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your leaders also did. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to everything he tells you and everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. So nearly 100 years ago, the Princeton professor and New Testament scholar by the name of J. Gresham Machen wrote these words. 
a cardinal doctrine of modern liberalism, and he means theological liberalism, a cardinal doctrine of modern theological liberalism is that the world's evil may be overcome by the world's good. No help is thought to be needed from outside the world. And he wrote those words in that thunderclap of a book called Christianity and Liberalism, and he wrote those words because there was a growing sense of embarrassment and skepticism about the supernatural claims and historical events of the Christian faith. And what Machen saw happening was that the central story of the gospel and historical reality of who Jesus was and what he accomplished, that that was being replaced by what he thought was basically a spiritual sentimentalism that was put in its place and a social activism that displaced the gospel from the center and moved it to the periphery. Well, Acts 3 is, a, is the holistic impact of the gospel in the world. Acts 3 doesn't choose between, between engaging the world with the healing power of Jesus and proclaiming the Jesus who died and rose again and is returning in glory. It, it combines these two. It relates the renewal project of Jesus in the world through his kingdom with the central message about Jesus and his death and his resurrection and his triumph and his return. And so this passage... In that way, it really revels in the reality of the forgiveness that's available through Jesus, and it revels in the hope of renewal that is promised through Jesus. And we'll see this unfold in three stages as we study this passage. Number one, let's look first at the miracle. The miracle. So it all begins, and we're just going to walk through this this narrative in that kind of way. It all begins in John, uh, Peter and John are in verse one, they're walking into the temple to pray. So that's the first thing. They're going to the temple to pray. It's 3 p.m. in the afternoon. The CSB translates that for us helpfully. Older translations will say at the ninth hour, but we don't mark time that way. So thankfully the CSB brought that forward so we can actually see a clock on the wall on their way into the temple. We know what time it is in time that we recognize. It's the time of the afternoon sacrifice. Everybody goes to the temple for the afternoon sacrifice and there's accompanying the afternoon sacrifice, there is a time of congregational corporate prayer. And on their way to that time at three in the afternoon, they see a man, he's crippled from birth. They've probably seen him before, Because verse 2 says he's laid there every single day. If you fast forward and you read Acts chapter 4, verse 22, you find out how old this guy is. He's over 40 years old. So he's probably been laid by his family at that place every day for 20 plus years. This is is a place he's very familiar with this spot. And his family members have been placing there at the beautiful gate for a long time so that he can beg for alms. So he's begging for alms. See that in verse two, he was placed each day at the temple gate called beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. So uh, why? Well, that would have been a way of lessening the financial weight that was placed upon this man's family members. There would have been special things that they would need to provide for him and he couldn't get a job, he couldn't work in those ways. And so this would lessen a little bit of the load. It's a sensible location. If you're gonna beg for alms, it's a high traffic area. People are going to worship. These are the Jewish people and they had been steeped in the, the practice and priority of giving alms to the poor. All throughout the Old Testament, provision for the poor is something that God says to his people, care for the poor among you. And so this is a perfect place. They're on their way to worship, so they're thinking about God and his claims and his priorities for his people. They're going in, and there he is reminding them, I'm one of those poor and needy people, and I need you. 
It's a perfect place for him to be at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. The giving of alms priority for God's people all throughout the Old Testament, so probably he left every day with at least something in his hand, something that he walked away with, provisions from a compassionate people. But there was probably also, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say this, that there was probably also a, a sense of shame that was mixed in with his being there at the gate, beautiful, incapacitated, begging for money. Remember, there was a, <clears throat> there was a man born blind in the Gospel of John, chapter nine. So this man's born crippled, there was a man born blind, and what did Jesus' disciples say? They walk up and they see this man born blind and they say, how'd that happen? And they said, was it, was it his fault, sins that he committed, or sins that his parents committed? And Jesus said, I don't like your two options. <laughs> and so Jesus filled in the blanks, but it does give you a little bit of a peek into how they sometimes viewed the world. Somebody doesn't just get this way without someone sinning. Someone sinned, and so this person's condition is a reflection of the disfavor of God or even the curse of God. In other words, coming into the world with disease or physical disorder was sometimes seen as an evidence of God's displeasure on someone's life or displeasure with someone's family. And you can imagine, so he's there, he's perched in that spot and he's calling out to people on their way into the temple and you just think about the fact that not only is he poor and unable to move on his own, but probably there's a profound sense of isolation. You know, this happens even today. If you're at a red light and there's someone with a cardboard sign and they're asking for money, and all the people who don't intend to give that person money are doing what? looking the other way. There's something that happens to be incredibly interesting on the right-hand side of everybody's car who doesn't plan to give because there's a sense of not wanting to make eye contact unless you're going to give. So can you imagine how many people are headed to worship and he's looking at the side of their heads on their way to worship? And to make eye contact with them, just like if you did it at the red light, if you make extended eye contact, you can see that person's eyebrows raised. They start walking in your direction. There's an expectation. Nobody looks at me this way unless they intend to bless me, unless they intend to give something. So again, most likely this guy's looking at people who are very intentionally not looking at him. It's, it's a picture of not only total helplessness, but profound isolation in verse two and three. And Luke tells us, that he saw Peter and John and asked for money, and they don't avert their eyes. Matter of fact, the text says, verse four, Peter along with John looked straight at him. Not only did they look straight at him, they said, look at us. See it in your passage? Along with John, looked straight at him and said, look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them, and then you can hear the air drain out in verse six, his expectations as he walks up to them, and then Peter says, we don't have any silver or gold. Can't you sense, the way that Luke tells the story, can't you sense the disappointment, the discouragement, maybe even the eye roll, maybe even the attitude, like, guys, I'm not out here for quality time, I need something. I, I need resources. I'm poor, I'm needy, my family has a hard time providing for my needs. That's why I'm here every day. 
So they see a need, but they got no money to give. As the story develops, they see this need, but they've got no money to give. I think it's no accident that Peter and John forgot their wallets in this particular passage. Peter and John say, we have no silver and gold. This is not a day where the story is gonna be how ordinary provision brings blessing to the poor. That's very true. And we even saw it last week, how the provision of the church for the poor among them brings everybody to the table and provides resources for those who are poor among us. That's very true and it's very beautiful. It's just not the point of Acts chapter three. In Acts chapter three, God is gonna flex. In Acts chapter three, Jesus is gonna show this man something of the powers of the coming age that spill over into the present because Jesus has the authority to make the world new again. And he's gonna give a visible display of his authority to reclaim the world, to make the world new again. Theological liberalism's claim that the world's needs can be overcome by the world's goods is about to collide at this intersection at the beautiful gate in Acts chapter three. And I think it's a good reminder for us as the people of God that the church's ministry and effectiveness in ministry is not tied to the church's wealth. There's power in Christ and his kingdom that can't be bought. No matter how rich we are in the West, there are things we can't see done in the world except by the power of Jesus and his spirit. Matter of fact, later on in the book of Acts, somebody sees power displays and he says, I'll, I'll buy that, how much? And Peter rebukes him and he says, you can't buy this, that's not how this works. 13th century theologian Thomas Aquinas reportedly came in for a meeting with Pope Innocent II, and he was, Pope Innocent II, when Aquinas walked in, was counting out large sums of money, and here's how the exchange, tradition has it, went down. The Pope said, you see, Thomas, the church can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. And Aquinas said, true, Holy Father, but neither can she now say, rise and walk. And that, friends, is what you call a mic drop. In the 13th century, they did it uh, as well as we do it today. Here's the thing, look, this, this man encounters something he wasn't prepared for. Look, this is just a normal Tuesday. He was not expecting this. He's asking for money, he's gonna get legs, right? This is not expected. Signs and wonders all throughout the book of Acts, they follow the proclamation of the gospel, the preaching of the kingdom, which you hear the apostles doing in chapter after chapter, the preaching of the kingdom is attested by signs and wonders that point to the powers of the kingdom. So they're proclaiming the kingdom with words and then there are these miracles that are going on and the types of miracles themselves portrayed the nature of God's renewing work in the world. Again, this guy does not have a category for what's about to happen. Here's what happens next. Jesus intervenes and joy begins. Jesus intervenes and joy begins. Look with me at verse six. Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then, taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk, and he entered the temple with him, walking leaping and praising God. This man has not read the, the, the rule book on Christian etiquette and what you're supposed to do in church. He is making a scene. He is having a praise conniption. He is going after it, right? There, there's just stuff that, 
that you're not supposed to journal. You don't normally see this sort of thing happening. He's walking, he's leaping, he's praising God. This is not charismatic chaos. This is joy from Jesus. What's he supposed to do? Guy got legs. Bro has not walked in over 40 years. He's got legs. You're going to stop him? Try to stop him. Right? What happens if the religious authorities come over and they're going to come rain on the parade and say, look, we're here to maintain some religious decorum. Aren't you going to run over in that moment if you're there or you're a fly on the wall? Aren't you going to run and say, hey, guys, listen, listen. We know you're in charge of religious decorum around here, but for the day, you're fired. Right? Your, your services are no longer needed. Not, give the man a minute. He's never walked before. He's using his brand new legs. Give the man a minute. And then Luke turns the camera around and lets you see the people taking in the scene. Verse 9. All the people saw him walking and praising God and they recognized he's the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. Let Luke The storyteller, let him transport you there so that you can feel the wonder of what's going on here. And so we have a miracle, and the miracle is followed by the message. The message. So crowds run over. They see this man jumping and leaping and making a ruckus, and they come running over toward Solomon's colonnade in astonishment, verse 11 says, I think this is really instructive though. Crowd is forming. Peter turns around, sees this crowd forming. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't have a healing service. And this is one more place I think where so many of the false teachers who claim to run healing services don't pass the smell test. Because there is no strutting of ministry power. There's no white coats swinging at people and everybody's falling in all directions. None of that. Matter of fact, Peter says, why are you staring at us as if we did this? We can't pull this off. We don't raise people up and give them legs. Jesus did this. It's him. It's his name. We spoke his name and this guy gets to walk and dance and run around the temple. It was Jesus' work. What are you staring at us for? Movement of events is interesting. Jesus heals a man who can't walk. Peter addresses a crowd that can't see. After all, that's what ignorance is, right? It's failing to see what's right in front of you. It's failing to see the obvious. And he identifies, he says, by the way, so you knew this man had a problem because you walked by him all all the time. And he says, but what you didn't know is you have a problem. You have an ignorance problem. Matter of fact, that's what he says in verse 17. You were ignorant. Your leaders were too. It wasn't just you. All of you were ignorant. There's stuff that was right in front of your eyes that you didn't see, and now I'm here to address that. Well, what's the ignorance? Pray tell, what ignorance are you talking about? He says, well, when you killed the one who raised this man up, when you killed him, when you hung him on a cross, Pilate was gonna give him to you, and you said, no, give us Barabbas, and you let him hang. The man who raised this up, he was your Messiah. He was the source of life, and you killed him. Verse 13, the God of our ancestors glorified his servant Jesus. So he authenticated by miracles who Jesus was. And what'd you go do? You handed him over. See it? Handed him over and denied him before Pilate. Friend, this is a sermon with teeth in it. This is not an inspirational sermon. He's, He's leaning into this moment. He's saying there was a cosmic oops and you were involved. Your hand was on the trigger. Massive problem. You put the Messiah on the cross, the one who was promised to you, and you hung him on a cross. The points of the sermon are as follows. He preaches the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 14, 
You deny the holy and righteous one, you kill the source of life. He preaches the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 15, whom God raised from the dead, we saw him alive. He preaches the power of Jesus. His name, verse 16, has made this man strong. He preaches the ignorance of the audience. You acted in ignorance, but your leaders were involved as well. He preaches the need for repentance. Verse 19, therefore repent and turn back so your sins may be wiped out. He preaches the return of Jesus and the restoration of all things. He says, repent so that your sins may be wiped out and so that seasons of refreshing may come that he may send Jesus, that heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things. He's pointing to the the last event on the redemptive calendar, the return of Christ and the restoration of everything. And then he preaches the God who fulfills his promises. He says, God spoke to you about all of this stuff through the prophets. If you had read your Old Testament, you would have been ready for it. And so the miracle and the sermon are connected. It's not two totally different things. The miracle tees up the sermon about what Jesus brings to the world and his, the renewal that comes through his kingdom. So we've seen the miracle, we heard the message, and now let's talk about the meaning. The meaning. I love how one commentator describes this. He says, quote, Acts 3 is Christianity coming into contact with the dysfunction of the planet. (laughs) How awesome is that? Acts 3 is Christianity coming into contact with the dysfunction of the planet. And the healing is a few things. Number one, it's a picture. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of how God finds us broken and leaves us whole. As one, I can't remember who it was, One person said in church history that grace finds us beggars and leaves us debtors. It's the story of the gospel. This man's physical condition is a perfect canvas for talking about the good news. It's a perfect canvas for the gospel. He's incapacitated. Look at him there. He can't move toward God. He's incapacitated, and he was born that way. He was born in this condition. We too are incapacitated. We too are born this way. We're born in sin. We're incapable of moving toward God. No one is righteous. No one is good. No one seeks after God. We're not moving in his direction. Peter and John, then what happens next in the story? They set their gaze on him, and they say, look at us. Oh, friend, understand, in the story of the gospel, Jesus sets his gaze on the sinner's soul and he says, look to me and live. Look to me in faith. The Jesus of the gospel is still on the move in the pages of the book of Acts. He is risen and he is chasing sinners down. He catches the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. He catches Saul of Tarsus in Acts 9, catches Cornelius in Acts 10, catches Lydia in Acts 16, and all on their own way, each of them in their own way, they went walking and leaping and praising God. There there were manifestations of the joy they had in Jesus, their allegiance to this one who redeemed them and saved them. I'm so glad this guy was healed physically because it allows us to see God's kingdom coming into contact with the dysfunction of the planet, how Jesus the king forgives sins and he promises to make all things new. The Old Testament prophets, when they painted a picture of what would happen when all was said and done and when God's kingdom landed with the fullness of its glory, here's how they talked, Isaiah 35, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap 
like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And 750 years later at the gate beautiful, this man said, amen to that. I don't know if we've, if he ever came in contact with or had the privilege of reading or hearing Isaiah 35, but somehow he got the memo. He knew, I got legs. What I'm supposed to do, I think, is leap. <laughs> Charles Wesley's great hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great redeemer's praise. There's a verse about the total work of God and restoring all things, and he writes this, this way, hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. You've got a tongue, start using it. Now you can use it, use it in praise. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come and leap, ye lame, for joy. It's a parable. It's a parable of what Jesus is doing through the gospel in the world by his church. So you keep reading the book of Acts and you get to Acts chapter eight and when the gospel goes to a city in Samaria in chapter eight, Luke doesn't just say they preach the gospel there. It's, it's not a, a clinical description of what happens. It, it, Luke lets you hear the music playing in that town once the gospel has come there. Luke, Luke talks about the freedom and the joy that came and rang out when Jesus came to town. Unclean spirits, he writes, came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. I love that brief description in Acts 8 because it starts by saying the gospel went there and it ends by saying joy went there. Joy travels with the gospel. It makes all things new. It's a picture, it's a parable, and it's a reminder a reminder that we see glimpses now of what will come in fullness when Christ returns. Theologians often talk about the, the already not yet of the kingdom. That there are moments in our lives, we see this in the pages of the New Testament, but we also see it today, that there are moments where something of the powers of the age to come spill over into the present by the power of the Holy Spirit. Someone is healed or some glorious act of God's inbreaking power in the world and it's basically it's just saying there's more where that came from your future is full of that we get a glimpse we get a brief taste but that's coming in fullness in the new creation in the new Jerusalem this will just be Tuesday this will just be every other day will be this kind of glorious renewal so as you see this man who was born crippled and he's dancing his way into the temple what you're seeing don't miss it is a preview of the eschaton it is a preview of coming attractions the kingdom that's coming in fullness when Jesus returns there's a poem that was written by Christian author John Piper at the end of a book called Future Grace where he describes the the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth. I'll read just a, an excerpt from that poem. And as he spoke, the throne of God came down to earth and shone like golden crystal full of light and banished once for all the night. And from the throne a stream began to flow and laugh and as it ran it made a river and a lake and everywhere it flowed a wake of grass broke on the banks and spread like resurrection from the dead. And in the twinkling of an eye, the saints descended from the sky 
And then now he pictures himself in the new Jerusalem. And as I knelt beside the brook to drink eternal life, I took a glance across the golden grass and saw my dog, old Blackie, fast as she could come. She leaped the stream, almost. And what a happy gleam was in her eye. I knelt to drink and knew that I was on the brink of endless joy. And everywhere I turned, I saw a wonder there. Big man running on the lawn. That's old John Young with both legs on. The blind can see a bird on wing. The mute can lift their voice and sing. The lame can walk. The deaf can hear. The cancer-ridden bone is clear. Arthritic joints are lithe and free. And every pain has ceased to be. And every sorrow deep within. And every trace of lingering sin is gone. And all that's left is joy. And endless ages to employ the mind and heart and understand the love the sovereign Lord who planned that it should take eternity to lavish all his grace on me. Joy comes from Jesus to the world through the gospel. Anybody can get in on this. No matter what condition you're in this morning, no matter how far you've run from God or how far you're actively running from God. Only he knows what's going on in your hearts here this morning. But no matter what condition you're in, grace is yours in Christ. Repent and believe. Trust in Jesus who finds us, who heals us, who forgives us, who cleanses us, who restores us. What a picture this is of the lavish grace of God in Christ. You think about it, again, this man doesn't ask for healing. <laughs> he, doesn't even ask, he doesn't even know what he's supposed to be asking for. He thinks his biggest issue is just money and who can blame him. He asks for money, he gets legs. It's, it's a call to the church. There's a picture, there's a parable, and there's a call to the church. And what's the call? Bring the world into contact with the saving gospel of Christ and the healing grace of Christ. That's our call. That's the so what. That's the so Brook Hills. The world's evil will never be overcome by the world's good. That's why we have a gospel. That's why we need and treasure that gospel together.